0: Frederick Douglass once said, Once you learn to read, you will be forever free. And that famous philosopher, Dr. Seuss, gave this directive for a flourishing life. Fill your house with stacks of books and all the crannies and all the nooks. One of the greatest gifts God has given to us is the ability to read. But in today's world, constraints on our time and our increased focus on screens has crowded out reading for most of us and for most of our kids. We need to recover a love for reading, as good reading will shape and form us in good ways. It's because we believe this to be true that we're chatting with author Karen Swallow-Prior about the power of good books to shape our lives, our kids, our families, and our youth ministries on this episode of Youth Culture Matters.
1: From
2: the Center for Parent Youth Understanding, this is Youth Culture Matters. If you're a parent, youth worker, educator, counselor, grandparent, or anyone else who cares about kids, we're glad you've joined us for this practical, informative, and hope-filled podcast. This is a place where together we talk and think Christianly about the rapidly changing world of today's children,
0: teens, and young adults. Well, this is going to be, for some people, a very interesting podcast that we're going to have today just on uh, reading. I know that some people are going to wonder, why in the world would you address this on a podcast about youth culture? But I think you'll see as we work through this. And this actually, I believe, might be one of the most important and relevant conversations we've ever had on Youth Culture Matters. So as we talk about reading, Jason, welcome.
1: Yeah, good to be here. West Coast, yeah.
0: So so what have you been reading? What's the last book you read?
1: (laughs) Well, I've I've actually – I'm in the midst of doing a lot of writing, and so I'm reading a lot of books that have landed on my desk. Actually, they're all right here, but uh, uh, I just got done with Sean McDowell's New Chasing Love, uh, reading um, Julie Slattery, Dr. Julie Slattery's Rethinking Sexuality. And then also our host or our guest i'm sorry is actually uh quoted uh, another book that i'm reading called uh talking back purity culture and so um so i've been reading that and then to separate myself from the conversation around sexuality i went back and uh and i'm rereading boys on the boat which is a oh, yeah. autobiography or a biography of uh the 1936 olympics and uh a, a crew out of UW that that uh, that won the Olympics, but just the story of that, which is pretty incredible.
0: Yeah, that's on the pile that I have. It keeps getting moved down with other things that oh, are that are there. So, so good. Yeah.
1: I need it just to separate myself from the other conversations. What are you reading?
0: Uh, well, um, I just grabbed off the shelf a couple of Lewis books, Mere Christianity and uh, Screwtape Letters. Uh, so I'm, oh, yeah. I'm working on those. I'm reading a book called Cynical Theories, uh, which is written by a couple of young scholars on uh, critical theory, and that's been a fascinating and head-spinning read as well. And then uh, our little CPYU book club has been reading uh, Dane Ortland's book, Gentle and Lowly. So we're working through that over the course of two months, and that's been fascinating. So it's a, the problem for me is there's way too many on the stack and way too many that I'm reading simultaneously. So hopefully today our guests can redirect me more towards Uh, better reading habits if I'm, if I'm missing the mark there. But let me introduce Karen Swallow Pryor. She is a research professor of English and Christianity and Culture at Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary, which is, Karen, that's in Wake Forest, correct? That's correct. Right, so you're down, are you living in North Carolina now, or are you?
2: I still live in Virginia and commute down to teach my classes on campus. Okay,
0: all right, great. Well, Karen loves books. She's written several books, and the one we're going to focus on today as we have our conversation is a book she's written called On Reading Well, Finding a Good Life Through Great Books. And I love this from her bio because we're going to get to this. Her academic focus, this is where it gets fun for, for folks who are interested in youth culture because I think the connect here is really obvious for me. But her academic focus is British literature, With a specialty in the 18th century, a period she loves for its emphasis on philosophy, ethics, aesthetics, and community, and here's the key, as well as its efforts at correcting the universal human impulse to gravitate toward extremes. I love that. She lives with her husband and looks like quite a menagerie of animals you have there on this homestead in Virginia.
2: Yeah, a couple of dogs, a couple of horses, and a few chickens.
0: Okay, all right. We've had we've had some conversations here because uh, we would love, my wife would love to have a farmette, and a lot of that is related to her fascination with donkeys. So we've actually gone to meet some donkeys that are just we love those animals. So, do you have a donkey?
2: no no donkeys okay all right they are they are funny creatures yes
0: they are yes they are so so here's here's a question I want to ask you right out of the gate uh, because I'm fascinated by people's stories we're going to talk about stories you obviously have a story we know very little about but what what talk about you and your relationship with reading let's say at five years old 10 years old 15 years old and 20 years old because there's got to be a good story there with books
2: Sure. I mean, I don't know that the story has changed that much. One of my most vivid memories from being five years old is um, being alone in my, uh, well, actually, there's a friend with me um, who was also reading in my room and just using my finger to read the words aloud to myself um, from uh, from the foot book. I think that's Dr. Seuss, uh, one foot, two foot um and just just the words coming alive because my my mother had read to me from you know being a baby and uh, and still continue to read to me but just that moment when i was around 4 or 5 reading the words myself aloud um was magical and i just kept on reading um 10 i think of charlotte's web uh, which was just uh, just a, a book that has stayed inside my heart and mind and soul all these years. Where the Red Fern Grows. Another um, vivid memory of lying in my bed. I had I was the only girl. I had my own room, but I had bunk beds, and I was lying on the top bunk, wearing a flannel nightgown in cold Maine, northern Maine, <laughs> and my nightgown was just drenched with tears as I was finishing that book where the red fern grows about a boy and his hunting dogs. Um, and then 15, you know, I got into the, the, uh, that was then that this is now Essie Hinton. And the, you know, the cool kids and their gangs and love stories and so forth. And then when I was a sophomore in college, um, so right around 19 or 20 years old, I read the book that changed my life. And that was um, Gustave Flaubert's Madame Bovary, which is a a novel about a woman who is so consumed by romanticism and a romantic worldview that she, she destroys everything around her um including her own life and i saw in myself the same kinds of errors of mistaking a, a romantic worldview for ultimate reality and um it just it changed my life
0: hmm. well i want to ask you about that 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 last one you talked about there because w- w- the book that changed your life was that a book that was assigned to you to read or was that one that you chose because you found it somewhere
2: yeah, it was one that was assigned in my world literature class, but at that point I had become an English major, so I was choosing a life of of, of reading books, and it was just it was just a, a book that was assigned in my world literature survey class, and I'll never forget it.
0: You're passionate about reading. Um, that's why I love reading what you've written and listening to some of your talks, which, by the way, so many of them are on YouTube. Um, just pushing us to read and, and read more widely, to read well. What would you say as you've interacted, because you've, you've taught uh, college students for years now and now uh, on faculty at a seminary, what would you say, you know, encourages you about the state of reading among young people today and what discourages you about the state of reading among young people
2: I think what encourages me, especially I would say even just comparing today to even 10 years ago, is that uh, there is a willingness, uh, especially among conservative Christians who are my primary audience, there's a willingness to read more widely to read a a variety of views and there's less fear. Um, This is a generation that grew up on, you know, on Harry Potter and you know when many many of my earlier students just as it was coming out weren't allowed to read Harry Potter now I have a generation that you know was allowed and and developed a love for reading uh, and so they are willing to read more and read widely Um, what's discouraging is actually the something that is discouraging to me personally not just to, to young people is just that we li- living in this digital age and the social media age, um, our brains are actually changing uh, in terms of the, the the strong parts and the weak parts and the way that we respond in re- in reaction to so much time spent on screens and in, in sound bites or, you know, visual bites and um, little smatterings of information. So it actually, it the struggle to concentrate and be attentive for a long period of time and to get lost in a book um, is a struggle that we all have. And so I actually cannot think of anything in this moment that is more countercultural. That's a word Christians love that is more countercultural then developing the skill and, and cultivating and treasuring the skills of reading attentively, reading well, reading carefully, and uh, getting immersed in the written word.
0: It's, it, now, you brought up a lot of things there that I would love to spring <laughs> off of, and I'm sure we'll hit some of these, but let me just pause for a minute and ask you about what you just said. I'm going to guess that your preference, obviously, is the printed physical page as opposed to a screen you like to hold a book in your hands is that accurate
2: i that's very accurate
0: okay so so what would you say do you have conversations with students who come into the classroom and they they prefer because they've sort of nurtured themselves into this the culture has nurtured themselves into reading off of a kindle or you know a smartphone screen or whatnot i mean we've we've looked at some of the research on how it fundamentally changes the way that we read and comprehend depending on what we're reading off of you know a physical book or a screen how do you have that conversation with with students are you working to encourage them to grab the book the physical book
2: but- I absolutely am. And it, it's been an interesting kind of uh, uh, past several years. And you know, this is, I guess it's part of what it feels like to get old as the world changes so fast and you, you have a hard time keeping up. And so the, it was about five years ago, maybe a few more when eBooks became big and students started to use them. But that interestingly enough, now I teach primarily English majors and they're a different breed, but that only lasted a couple of years. English majors, and and now i think even more than english majors young people now do seem to want the book because they spend so much time on screens and so there are a few who don't and i generally just simply require the the written the the printed books in my classes and i will spend time explaining why i require that and why i encourage and almost require students to take notes by hand and so forth um but it is, you know, it, the struggle. The struggle is real, and uh, I do, I do encourage the the use of use of the print books. Not just because of the research that you talked about, but also because in the classroom, we're, you know, we're, we're looking at pages together. It just helps us to keep to be in the same place and um, to to work kind of at a text in community that way.
1: There's something that you said uh, earlier that still stands out to me that I I, want to come back to just for a brief moment, because you said uh, one of the things that's really encouraging, and I find it really encouraging just you saying it, is that students want to have a wide range of uh, books to be able to look at. And I I really appreciate even the uh, hypothesis around Harry Potter and some of those things. It's really interesting that you say that because sometimes, at least when I look at um friends that are older, I could see how those that are younger might might go with a wide range of uh, topics, books, uh, subjects. But I don't always see that with older friends. or at least as they get older, that's not what's happening. And so I, and you also said, or Walt was mentioning that your study was in the extremes. I know it was eighteenth um, century. But do you see any sort of parallels? And maybe it's not with this generation, but older generations with how reading takes place. Uh, uh, does it, I mean, my my assumption is that it does kind of stay within the extremes or it's starting to become that way mm-hmm. um, versus more nuanced in what is being read. Are, are you seeing similar trends and is it not, is it only happening with older generations, not the younger generation?
2: I mean, I think that, the, that what we think about reading and what we read uh, is definitely connected to the kind of culture wars mentality that we've been in for uh, the past several decades. And so, and there are many ways that that manifests. So it could be just simply like not reading uh, books by non Christians or not reading books by New Age types or not reading fiction and only reading nonfiction, only reading theology. Um, there are lots of ways that we can kind of get into our comfort zone or our tribe uh, and stay there. Uh, and so that becomes, that. that's just a smaller symptom of I think the larger problems that we see all around us of, mm-hmm. of people just simply, you know, of our polarization and our division. Um, our reading reflects that, but also I think our lack of reading widely and well is what has fed into this
1: polarization and division
0: Mm. you know
1: that's a great word
0: yeah you know jason that was a good question and i'm thinking as karen answers that question that we've heard a lot in the last few months about social media the online world algorithms right so even with our Mm -hmm. news we habits are, habits are formed, and, and somehow those algorithms continue to feed the habits. It sounds like even in our choice of books that we read, we become a kind of algorithm to ourselves, and we're drawn to certain things, repulsed by certain things. And rather than reading widely, as you've said, uh, we narrow that. Can you give us you know let's, let's think for a minute about youth workers. And, you know, one of the frustrations for me in my tribe here of youth workers is that I'll track with the different forums on Facebook and how someone will throw out a, a question like we to begin, hey, what are you reading now? Or what books do you recommend that I read? And it seems like a lot of what people are reading right now, at least in the youth ministry world, tends to weigh heavily towards leadership books, you know, so books on leadership, which to me, you know, I've, I've read a couple of them. I'm not really drawn to that. I probably have to force myself more into that. But they all sort of seem the same to me. And I'm wondering how can we, for a youth worker, what would you say to a youth worker about getting out of those little pockets of interest that we may have or that we're drawn to or we're habitually a part of? What what does it mean to read widely? Give us some you know, an overarching statement on that, and then point us to some different types of reading that we should be doing.
2: Well, I think, you know, the leadership books are really just part of a big part of the genre of self-help, and that's the genre. I, it's <laughs> The best way to grow and develop as a human being, whether that includes leadership skills or not, is to, is to to read and understand perspectives that get us outside of ourselves. And so reading classic works of fiction, reading new fiction, I mean, just reading fiction that is literary and quality is one of the best ways, Um, but also reading, you know, reading theology, reading biographies, um, just reading things that are about things other than ourselves. I mean, self-help is just in itself uh, is a form of, of navel gazing. And, uh, and really we, and we end up knowing more about ourselves and being better people when we are looking at the rest of the world and other people first.
0: Hmm. So you're, you're, you're pushing people out of that, which I love, you know, one of the things I've tried to do over the years is develop categories that I want to read in a more wide and balanced way, and then find books to, you know, to fit into that. Um, Unfortunately, one of my categories is baseball books. Uh, but actually, that's been quite helpful, you know, to, to to read every year a baseball book or two just about something that I love. But the stories of people are are fascinating, certainly this last year. Uh, some of the books I've read on guys like Jackie Robinson, Roy Campanella, very helpful to, to you know, Dick Allen, one of my childhood heroes. So Find those things and and read those. I love this. This is great. Listen, we need to take a break. Uh, We're talking to Karen Swallow Pryor about reading. It's going to get very practical here. We're going to talk a little bit about how to get our students to read, how to get them to read widely and deeply, a little bit about literary criticism. We're going to talk about her book on reading well, so stick with us. Someone once told me that readers are leaders and leaders are readers. I'm convinced that one of the most important disciplines for youth workers and parents is reading. I've also found that reading and discussing books together has helped me not only stay on a reading schedule, but to consider things that I might not have noticed on my own. That said, I want to invite you to join a reading community where together we read noteworthy and provocative books on important matters related to faith and culture. Our CPYU Reading and Discussion Group can be found on Facebook. Almost 500 people are a part of the group and we'd love to have you join us. We read and discuss one book every two months. Just search on Facebook for the CPYU Reading Discussion Group and then request to join. I'd love to have you join us.
1: Welcome back to Youth Culture Matters. We're here with Karen swallow Prior, and having a great conversation on reading and the importance of reading. Um, I, before the break, one of the questions that I wanted to ask is, because um, we were talking about leadership books, we were, I, I love the way that you uh, broke down the self-help category, but I'm curious as I think about this, um, is it the book necessarily, or is it how we read the book that, that matters,
2: Well, it's actually both. So this is actually uh, this is something basic that I teach in my classes from freshman through graduate level. So you can take it to so many levels. Um, But when we talk about a book or a work of art or a church or a tweet or really anything we want to think about the form and the content. And as Christians, we tend to think primarily about content, you know, whether we're talking about a film, like, oh, does it have a good message? Oh, does a sermon have a good message? Or, you know, is it, it whatever it might be, we think about the message or the content and we don't think as much about the form and so the form of a book so how the story or the message is told or how it's delivered or you know in a movie how is the character developed and the plot developed is it simple and easy and um does it cheat the the viewer and the same thing in our reading do we are we reading just to consume information and read rapidly and quickly or are we reading in order to really reflect and to be attentive and to develop the virtues that we can develop through the practice of reading and therefore be changed, not because of the information that's fed into our brain, but because of the practices and, and the virtues that we apply through the process of reading.
1: Mm-hmm. I, I appreciate the way you said that. Um, it, well, that actually leads pretty well then to to the next question, because Um, you know, we've discussed briefly the, the aspect of how many students are online and what that's doing. And, 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 and we discussed that even in the discouragement, um, that you see, but I am curious with the students that you work with, uh, specifically those that are English majors, are you finding that they're online as much, um, as, uh, maybe more or less than most other students that are maybe pursuing other, uh, other degrees? And, and I, I just, I. Yeah, I, I have a hypothesis in that, but I might be completely wrong. Mm-hmm. And so I, I would just be curious what your thought is in what you see in your students.
2: Yeah, I mean, I, I don't know if I could really begin to answer that question with any um, facts or data, but I do just know that the English majors joke often with each other and with their roommates about how many hours they spend a week on their schoolwork because they have to put in hours and hours of reading to do the kinds of assignments that you know that most english majors get so that's clearly hours that they're not doing other things uh and so even though english majors love what they do and and maybe in that sense it it's a little bit easier in one uh meaning of the word they actually spend a lot of time doing that kind of work and and often observe that other majors are just you know it's just one and done and they're quick and they're off to other things, so.
1: This this doesn't lead anywhere, I, I, I am just really curious. How many of your students that graduate with an English degree actually go in and, uh, or go on to do something uh, that's directly related to their major? Um, I, 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 I've, I've actually been really quite surprised how many English majors will actually graduate and then go on and help write Uh, documents for for uh, stocks and and other stuff like it it, it's not necessarily the first thing you think of but I mean how many of them go on to pursue something specifically with language words writing
2: I think that's actually increased because of the digital age that we're in now Um, so 10 or 20 years ago before there was all this connectivity and and data being created on uh, uh, content being created online uh, there were fewer opportunities, but now English majors have a lot of ways that they can use their love uh, for language. And of course, many of them do end up going on to uh, to further studies. I mean, medical schools and law schools and a lot of other professional schools love English majors because English teaches you how to think critically and how to communicate. And those are skills that can be used in, in any discipline and are harder to teach later on. So, um, so an English major is really just a, a good degree for becoming, you know, a good thinker and a better person. And you can apply that in, in any number of ways. It's not necessarily a practical degree. It's it's not that someone gets a job reading more books unless you become a professor, I guess. But um, <laughs> uh, it's just a, it's a, it's just a good like any like any discipline in the liberal arts. It teaches you yeah. to think and to live well.
1: Hmm. Well, then that, that would lead to, to, to one very practical aspect, and that's this. Like what, what is it – okay, so we're going to have listeners that um, have never really cultivated a love for reading. I know that for me personally, I, I, I didn't read a lot of the classics that – like where the red fern grows. I didn't read it until after I graduated college. My, my love for reading happened after I graduated. Um, and I'm just curious what you might say to individuals or what you've maybe even said to students, um, to help them cultivate a love for reading.
2: Well, first, I just want to say that that really is the norm. Now we, you know, when I grew up, there was nothing to do but read i guess or play baseball and i wasn't doing that so um so we live in an environment now where there's so there's so many options for spending our leisure time and our our brain time so anyone who has not grown up reading and doesn't read much now um should not feel discouraged or or alienated or as though they're they're weird because that's just simply the norm and so as with anything else to develop skills and habits of reading we have to be intentional about it so we have to practice it we have to put time aside um, even find community I mean book clubs I think are flourishing because people do want to read more and they do want to read well and so doing that in community there are lots of Facebook groups that do it there are podcasts that are devoted to discussing books my whole series of classics that I'm doing with b that has um, four released already well two about to be released um is designed to introduce readers to classic works guide them through with light footnotes and lots of reflection questions so it's not something that reading and especially reading good literary works is not something that comes naturally to us even though we talk and tweet all day long reading reflectively and critically requires intentionality it requires practice it requires pausing and thinking asking um and that's what my books are designed to do that's what english classrooms do and that's what i think that youth groups and youth leaders can do in community Mm -hmm. even something as um as simple as well just literally reading i spent a lot of time in my classroom with college students reading passages out loud together because i realized when we're even even english majors are are, they're missing a lot we're reading fast we're skimming and and, well i I miss a lot that's why i reread a lot of these books so just simply reading aloud together and talking about a passage helps develop the skill it takes to to read closely i once spent 20 or 30 minutes in a class discussing the opening sentence of jane eyre with a class just the opening sentence. <laughs> yeah,
1: that's
2: how that's how much we got out of those those rich, beautiful words.
0: What I hear you saying is something we've talked about before on here, and uh, we've had Jamie Smith on, you know, and he talks a lot about how our habits form yeah. us, and yeah. it's interesting, you know, when when I hear him talk, and I've I've read a lot of what he's written, and then I think about my own life, and even going back into the scriptures, you see where that principle is. Stated and and really plays out and it's true the you know there's a lot of people I run into who say you know I almost they wear it like as a as a as a badge of honor you know, I haven't read a complete book in the last four years and well shame on you you know like it, well I can't I'm not a good reader well the more you do it you found this to be true right the more this is the brain science as well the beautiful way that God's made us that the more we do this the more we're able to read now I want to jump into your, your book here uh, on reading well, which is subtitled Finding the Good Life Through Great Books, because you talked about how a youth worker could sit and read books with students, maybe do it over Facebook or Zoom or in presence, you know, starting a, starting a book club, and families can do this together. But what's interesting, I mean, I love what you've done here. You've, you've taken us into several classic books that all uh, deal with a virtue of some type, and this goes back to what, you, what I read in your bio about as the uh, efforts of uh, British literature in the 18th century to correct a universal human impulse to gravitate toward extremes. Can you talk about that in relation to this particular book on reading well? Because especially I'm, I'm thinking in, in, in particular the chapter on The Great Gatsby which you know f scott fitzgerald where you talk about temperance you really work that out that principle out talk a little bit about that now this can help us reading can help us Mm -hmm. develop in students the kind of virtuous living and and thinking Mm -hmm. that we want to see
2: yeah i think it's it's wonderful to just think for a moment about what the actual definition of virtue is at least according to aristotle who is you know one of the founders of this field of moral philosophy For Aristotle and many thinkers afterwards, afterwards, including Aquinas who writes a great deal on the virtues, um, a virtue is not just a good thing. A virtue is the right amount of a good thing. So it's actually just just as much lacking in virtue to have too much of something as too little. So it's the moderation between an excess and a deficiency. So if we take, for example, um, like courage, Uh, Courage is a virtue. If we have too little of courage, it's cowardice. But if we actually if we have too much, it's recklessness. And we tend to just think that something that's bold or rash or daring is virtuous on its own, but it's not because if it's if it's too reckless, it actually causes harm and damage. And so it's very difficult to just find to not be a coward, but also not to be rash and reckless and the middle is courage. And so um, you know, so I discuss 12 different virtues in my book on, on reading well and show how they get you, we can learn about them through these works of literature in the great Gatsby. I talk about temperance, right? Which is, uh, it is a word. It's, it also just sort of means moderation in a general sense. So in one way, it's, it's the virtue that, um, echoes all of the, the virtues. Um, and Aristotle talked about temperance, uh, mean in terms of simply our physical appetites there are other ways of talking about temperance um and it's interesting because you know we have to eat to live and we have to drink to live and we have to uh we have to have sexual relations for the our species to survive so it's not as though we can't we can abstain from any of these things and survive as individuals or as a race but we have to approach them in moderation because if we do them too much then we lose virtue if we uh and so um we we're we're no longer virtuous and so temperance according to aristotle is is the regulation of what he called our animal appetites or the you know the appetites that we are necessary for us to serve to actually live physically um, and The Great Gatsby is just a great example of of a world and a character um, that completely lacks temperance. And so, in talking about that um, that novel, I I, I think it, it you know set in the in the nineteen twenties, just before the the Great Depression. It was a time of where there was very little temperance, and yet. I think we can see so much about our own culture today because we really do lack temperance. We can see it in the extremes that I talked about in in my biography. For example, even just in our—and I'm sorry—I could go on and on, but just one example, even in our in our in our home interiors, there's a tendency toward extreme minimalism or extreme sort of bohemianism. We, you know, we tend to like a lot of something whether it's it's a lack of it or an abundance of it um and the same in our own in, in our own lives um you know I, I i struggle myself you know i have i have i have too many shoes and too many clothes and this past year i've had nowhere to wear them <laughs> so i'm you know i'm seeing i'm seeing uh how difficult it is to be temperant uh te- to be tempered in many areas of life and uh the great gatsby is just one little sort of entryway into thinking about the application of that for our lives in many ways.
0: You know, it's interesting when I was reading the chapter on that, It, it and you said this, that uh, there's so many expressions of this in our contemporary life. And there's this one, well, a couple of lines you wrote in here where you talk about Gatsby's vision of Daisy. And, and for those who are unfamiliar with the book, uh, I think you'll get this. You know, Gatsby's vision of Daisy and of love and life itself is disconnected from reality. The disconnect began in his youth when his sense of shame over his shiftless and unsuccessful parents inspired a revisioning of himself and his own origins, and to this conception he was faithful to the end. I read that, and all I could think about was how we fabricate, curate, and promote ourselves on social media you know, just comment on that before we take a break. Cause I've heard you talk about social media and, mm-hmm. and I think we need you have to have you back just to talk about that. Cause you've got some great perspectives oh, well, on that. I would that. love that. Yeah. We're going to do well, that. But...
2: Well, even just the phrase that you just picked up on, even being disconnected from reality. I mean, Gatsby d- developed a fantasy life for himself based on Daisy, not on who she really was, but who he imagined her to be. And we see this, this is partly what explains, um, you know the infatuation with QAnon and other conspiracy theories, and and the the people who went to the Capitol to support the president, but somehow got caught up in something else. It's very very easy to do when our when our minds. Um, You know, our imaginations are captured by things that are really not connected to reality. It's very easy to do. And and this is one of the lessons that literature teaches us, that it's actually the same lesson in a different way in Madame Beaufort, the book I talked about earlier that changed my life.
0: Yeah. And social media, I think about kids and the things we talk about in our Digital Kids Initiative and how social media just pushes this. You know, I mean, it, it feeds this tendency that we have. And even just the, the selfies that kids will post and the amount of time that they spend mm-hmm. in that cycle of performance and, you know, putting up there an, an image and an identity that's not even close to reality. I, I, that's what popped at me mm-hmm. when I read that. And, and so there's a great example for everyone who's listening about what Karen's talking about and how cultural realities and things that our kids are dealing with uh, reading together and, and conversing about good literature mm-hmm and and virtue can really uh, foster, I think, growth, spiritual growth. And, yeah, so this is great. This is great. Well, listen, I want to say uh, one thing, and that is that uh, pe- people who listen to us regularly are aware of this, that everything we mention here, uh, Karen's books, those that we don't even mention, her website, all those things— will be, if you go to cpyu.org and scroll down under the player for this particular episode of the podcast, you'll be able to find links that Chris Wagner will post and we'll make it easy for you to get to everything that we talk about. So we're going to take a break. We'll be right back and continue our conversation. Youth workers, are you looking for ways to continue your ministry to parents during these difficult days where parent ministry is more necessary than ever before? Would you like to bring CPYU to your church in spite of COVID-induced limitations on travel and gatherings? I would love to come to your church in a personal, live, real-time, virtual format. We are now offering several different one-hour seminar options, including Q&A, that you can now book at a time that is most convenient for you and your parent group. Participants can join as they gather in one place together or from their own homes. You can learn more about these seminar options by visiting our website at cpyu.org and clicking on the link for the Virtual Parent Seminars. Remember, to learn more and to book a CPYU Virtual Parent Seminar, go to cpyu.org.
1: Thanks again for listening to Youth Culture Matters. So coming out of the break, one of the things that uh, our youth workers, one of them had mentioned or wanted to know, is at what point do you actually stop reading or do you stop reading if you get to a point in a book and you're just like, it's, it's, this isn't helping, this isn't good? I mean, what would your response be to that youth worker?
2: I, my response in general is there are too many good books and too little time. So, you know, don't, don't quit something because it's challenging to you or makes you uncomfortable or it's hard, but certainly if it's just, you're, if it's just not, if you're just not seeing it, then give it up. I've given up, uh, I gave up, I give up books 10, 20, 30 pages in. I once listened on Audible because I do listen to books when I run to about, 18 hours of a 19 hour book. And I was like, okay, I'm done. (laughs) I I just didn't even care how it ended at that point. So uh, there are just so many wonderful things out there to read that just pick up something that you want to read. But again, don't, don't be a a quitter all the time. Um, And and that's where I think, um, you know, getting good advice to begin with being part of a reading community can be helpful.
1: I have a I have a question with that. Have you ever um, uh, gotten halfway through a book, and then you're like, I don't know, but you, then you finish it, and you're like, you walk away from it, and it ends up having, uh, it keeps coming back up in your memory, or somehow, like, has that ever happened, or, or uh, yeah, like, I, I, I know that sometimes there have been books that I have to push through, and I'm like, ha, that was not that good, but for some reason, it sticks in my memory, and ends up being a book I come back to multiple times over several years
2: i think the pushing through actually is what what helps it stay in your in your brain more and so i mean there's there's lots of, of of research cognitive research about this that just and again it's also one of the reasons why conspiracy theories are so popular is because when we when there's a bit of a challenge that we have to overcome we actually we feel like we've learned something and we get that sort of dopamine um hit that that uh that that we love and so pushing past a challenge in a book can actually make it stay with us longer
0: Mm. Mm. that is good well let's get really really practical here and we want to hear you talk to uh, parents and youth workers about how do we uh, first choose good books and direct our kids towards good books and then what are some ways that we can assist them in the, in the task of reading well?
2: Uh, You know, reading is something we so often think of as something we do alone in isolation and nothing could be farther from the truth. I mean, reading a book is being in conversation with an author who is in conversation with many who came before that person. So we should think about reading as a communal activity. And if we think about it that way, then we, you know, we should go to uh, ask our friends uh, for suggestions, join formal book clubs that meet in person or on zoom. Um, There's, like I mentioned before, there are many Facebook groups and podcasts that have exploded in recent years that are devoted to the topic of reading. Go to a librarian. I tell my students this all the time. I mean, librarians exist to help people find the right books and they are wonderful resources. Um, And, and when I'm asked to give recommendations, I, you know, I have my favorites, but I like to know what kinds of you know, what kind, what interests the person, because there are so many good books out there, and, you know, as C.S. Lewis said, and I'm, I'm just going to paraphrase him, but he said, for every, you know, for every uh, old, every four new books we read, we should read an old one. Uh, for me, that's reversed, because I read a lot of old books, but the idea behind that is that we should challenge ourselves. We should you know, read beyond. We all have what we like to read, or we're developing that taste, and then we should push ourselves and read something outside that as well. Mm.
0: Uh, how do we read more deeply? Like, how could how could a parent, uh, are there some simple things we can do to get our kids to read more deeply, or if we're reading in community as a youth worker with, with our students?
2: I think the way that we've been trained uh, to read the Bible is actually a helpful model. When we read the Bible together, we read long passages we read a whole book or we dwell on a verse and we reflect on it and we go back over it the same skills that we use to read the Bible closely and deeply are the same skills that we can use to read a good work of literature or a poem um, or or an evocative essay Um, we read it slowly we take it apart we discuss uh, we reread we read it out loud um, so I think simply everyone picking up a book in a small group and reading it uh, and coming together and uh, reading passages of it and discussing them, that's what my, my series is designed to help people do, whether alone or in groups. Um, again, it's not something that comes naturally to us. I mean, just like people watch sport, small, <laughs> which I don't, people who watch sports, do the same thing they do the replays and they discuss the plays and they do the the monday morning quarterbacking or coaching or i don't even know what it's called but the same way that we discuss and analyze and dissect sports is this a game is the same thing that we can do with a good work of literature uh that's just taking joy and delight in it and and learning from it um in the same way that we learn from from games
0: Mm So to go back to this book here on reading well, finding the good life through great books, uh, I, I love the list. There are some books on here that you mention that uh, you analyze and really give us some great insight into as they relate to virtue. Some books that I've read, and there's some that I haven't. So I, I, I'm looking at this going, okay, i got to read that, i got to read that. But let's say I'm a youth worker, and I would like to start to, to do this. Is there one book that you mentioned in here that you would recommend? Yeah, that's a good starting point for a group of students. Hmm. I know that's uh, an unfair, it seems like yeah, I, as I'm asking, I, I'm going, okay, she's gonna hate this question, right? Cause they're all been, important. Yeah.
2: Right, right. Um, I would say, I think um, Huckleberry Finn, The Adventures of Huckleberry Finn is a book that is, it's a wonderful story. It's also complicated in the sense that it's satirical. We're not supposed to take it at face value. And as I discuss in the chapter, it touches on so many important issues today, like even just just the status of our individual conscience. Can we always rely on our conscience? And what happens to a conscience that is malformed by the the false values of a community? So I think that is a a good work um, to read together.
0: These uh, other books that you've talked about that you're publishing with B and H, what particular uh, works are you uh, have you written versions? You know, uh, yeah, volumes. Uh,
2: The ones the uh, ones that came out last year are Jane Austen's *Sense and Sensibility* and Joseph Conrad's *Heart of Darkness*. Um, These are more college-level books, I would think. But again, I I give a very general introduction, and then just about to come out uh, in March are um, are Jane Eyre and Frankenstein. Frankenstein is actually a really interesting book to read. It's nothing like the film versions, and it too touches upon very deep theological questions about the nature of God as a creator and His responsibility to His creation. Uh, and then next year will be The Scarlet Letter and Tess of the D'Urbervilles.
0: Okay, I now now you mentioned you know how books are not always like films. You mentioned Frankenstein there. Um, so that's another question i wanted to ask you know so uh i'm looking at the great gatsby you know there's a film out there and then uh there's there's movies on a lot of these books you mentioned but then the other one is the road by cormac mccarthy which Mm -hmm. is a book i read how do you because you're going to have people go i don't need to read the book i'll just watch the movie you know give us some recommendations on that read the book first
2: yeah, I think read the book first. I mean, it goes back to the whole form and content thing that we talked about earlier. Uh, if you watch a film, and film, film is an art form, and is, it, and wonderful adaptations c- can be made of books that become works on a, to themselves. Um, but there's a different, it's a different experience entirely. To experience a work of literature through the linearity of the written word um so the plot might be the same the events might be the same but it's an entirely different experience um so i think reading the book first is helpful and some film out adaptations are good and some just aren't um they don't get the start the heart of the story right the road is quite adaptation is quite good yeah but the book is marvelous yeah marvelous
0: yeah and i you know as i was reading what you wrote about that i was thinking yeah this one would be a good one for teenagers too sort of that you know yeah. dystopian uh type of genre that that kids tend to be into so yeah that's good if uh is there a place that you could point us and maybe you've done something like this where someone who's never led a book discussion or had any training at all in literary criticism maybe a list of questions that would be good questions to throw at a group of students or at our peers you know our youth mystery peers or even if it's a mom or a dad in a book club, an adult um, in a book club, are there places where we can find those questions?
2: Uh, You mean questions that apply to all works of literature? Yeah some basic basic catch-all
0: questions that would be you know we could throw these out and start a good discussion on a book
2: well, I, I mean, I, the questions would change so much based on any particular work. So uh, again, I'm sorry to keep bring, coming back to this, but this is why I, I have this series in B&H for each book It's filled after each major part of the book. There's a series of questions and then reflection questions at the end. So that those are only six books, but I think that even going through those questions and uh, that that actually helps you know what kinds of questions to ask for any work of literature.
0: Yeah, are there any books that you've read that have helped you to become that you would point to to say you know that's really helped me learn how to read and become a better reader? Is there anything out there that's really helpful that we could point others to as well beyond you you know what you've written here, which I think is a great... Yeah.
2: Cool... there there yeah there are there are a number of books like that. One good book is How to Read Literature Like a Professor. Um, uh, that's a, a book that kind of helps t- you understand how to read works analytically like that. Um, that is, that's probably one of the best ones actually. And then Mortimer Adler's How to Mark a Book. Um, yeah, that one's a little bit overblown, but th- there's actually an essay version. So he gets into how to mark a book so that you're, you're reading it uh, critically and engaging with it by marking the text, which is something I, I highly recommend
0: writing yeah. in your book. Well, and I'm going to recommend to folks, again, that if people just Google your name and even look on YouTube, there are some just some fascinating conversations you have. Some of them are longer. Some of them are shorter. They're all very helpful and all very provocative and and just, just great ways to get us thinking and training us how to do this. Uh, so that would be good. What's, what's give us your your uh, address for your website because right? that's a great yes, place for people yeah. to go to.
2: It's uh, KarenSwallowPrior dot com, and I'm also on Twitter at KS Pryor. And uh, just yeah, I would just say I want to kind of we we got off on a lot of different uh, yeah paths about reading, but I want to bring it all back together. I just want to remind listeners that you know we are a people as Christians, we are a people of the book. So all of this stuff about reading literature and thinking critically and, and engaging with text is, is, is about what it means to be a Christian. Um, and so it's not that it's separate from that. As we read well, we think well, and as we think well, we become better Christians and, and better people of the word.
0: Yeah. That's a, that, and that is a good word right there. So Uh, We will put, as we said before, everything that we've talked about here on our website under the player for this particular podcast at cpyu.org. And I know that what Karen has shared with us here, we've opened a lot of different avenues, you know, a lot of different places we could go. We're going to have you back. Um, I know there's some great things we can chat about. I want to talk to you about social media. You mentioned Twitter there. And uh, Mm -hmm. I know that's an interesting place for you. And I'd love to hear hear more about that just and how we use social media. So we'll have to have a conversation on that. I one thing, love that. yeah, one thing. So, one thing I do want to mention is we have a mutual friend uh, who's a great resource for all things reading, and that's uh, Byron Borger, who runs Hearts and Minds Bookstore in Dallastown, Pennsylvania. Karen, I think you've been there to do a,
2: I have, a talk yes.
0: with, Brian, uh, with uh, Byron. And, and I'm going to say, I've said this all along. I mean, I don't know anybody who loves books more than Byron. He's dedicated his life to this, Mm -hmm. and it's a fascinating bookstore, which actually really exists just for the mission that you just mentioned about being people of the word and reading widely. And Byron, if you go to the site for his bookstore, you can subscribe to a a regular email that he sends out called Book Notes, which are lengthy, lengthy, Uh, but that's, that's just an example of his passion for books and how he helps us read. And Mm -hmm. he has helped so many people, uh, over the years just read into different topics and interests and vocationally and otherwise. So we highly recommend that. Well, this has been great, Karen. Thank you so much, um, Again I I, I I feel like I need to apologize after this one because we I have taken you all over the place a little bit. Oh
2: no it's been it's been this is the, I love this so I just, I just hope I hope the listeners kept up. <laughs> oh
0: yeah yeah well and I, and I again I will say what I said at the top that I think this is one of the most important conversations we mm-hmm. could have because you know our, our, I've said this a lot our kids are being catechized 24/ 7. They, they're being instructed, they're being shaped, their worldviews, their, world views, their right. sense of identity 24-7 uh, by a world that is just steeped in, uh, you know, the digital world, social media, so forth and so on. And so they are reading, but what we need to do is get them to read in ways that will form them rather than deform them right. and shape them rather right. than misshape them. So thank you uh, for your book. Uh, on reading well. So to everyone who's joined us, thank you. And we'll catch you on the next episode of Youth Culture Matters.
2: Thanks for joining us for Youth Culture Matters, a podcast from the Center for Parent Youth Understanding. If you'd like to learn more about today's youth culture, visit our website at cpyu.org. And if you have any questions, comments, or feedback, email us at podcast at cpyu.org.